Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Dom Nichols, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss the mysterious deaths of British volunteers in Ukraine and explore allegations of systematic torture. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 22nd of September, one year and 210 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by Alice Jill Edwards, the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture and Other Cruel, Inhuman or Degrading Treatment or Punishment, and foreign correspondent Colin Freeman. I should warn listeners that both contributors discuss material that some may find distressing. I started by giving the latest updates from the front lines. Breaking in the last hour, the headquarters of the Russian Black Sea fleet in Sevastopol has been hit by, we presume, missile strikes, maybe drones as well, we're not sure. The Russian-installed governor of uh, Sevastopol, Mikhail Razvoziev, has said it was missile strikes. The Russian MOD have said that five missiles were shot down. They didn't say how many, if any, got through or drones or anything like that. But they said one soldier was killed and the building damaged. Mr. Rozoviev warned people not to travel to the city centre or leave buildings. He's just been out on Telegram. Attention, everyone. Another attack is possible. I think that's uh, a bit of an understatement. He said firefighters are taking all measures to put out the fire as quickly as possible. The build-up of forces and resources continues. According to preliminary information, sorry, this is Mr. Rozoviev continuing. According to preliminary information, the civilian infrastructure around the fleet headquarters was not damaged. The people who were on the street at the time of the impact were also not injured. That's fine. Yeah, fair enough. The civilian infrastructure not damaged. But the images that are on a number of social media channels now, including many that I believe are reliable, show that the actual building itself has been badly hit or well hit, depending on your view. Russian Telegram sources also claiming that there were seven storm shadows. I don't know how they, they're able to spot these things unless they're absolute, if they're very good at their recognition. And they're saying along with one land attack, Neptune, and several drones. So there's some storm shadows were claimed to have been shot down, but at least one something got through to the, the fleet headquarters. I'm not able to verify. Say images from usually reliable sources on social media show smoke over the city and over the water. Now that smoke over the water could have could have blown across, but it does look look fresh. If you can have fresh smoke, it looks localized around some of the warships there. I'm not going to speculate any further, but keep your eyes on news coming out of uh, Crimea this afternoon. 
Separately, Ukrainian forces have mounted coordinated assaults on several villages in the eastern Donetsk region, heavily shelling the city of Bakhmut. That came from a Russian-installed official, so Denis Pushilin, who we've met before, the head of the so-called Donetsk People's Republic. He put out on social media over the past 24 hours, the enemy took a number of actions and conducted combat reconnaissance in several directions at once. He listed several villages in the north of Donetsk near the city of Liman. So we're about 100 k southeast of Kharkiv at this point. That area is under Ukrainian control. The assaults, he claimed, were suppressed by Russian forces. He said the situation in Bakhmut remains hot. The city itself is under chaotic shelling. Now, connected to that, President Zelensky vowed yesterday to liberate Bakhmut and announced a, well, it's been described as a secret plan. I don't think he would announce a secret plan, but he was talking about retaking two other cities. This was when he was still in Washington in conversation with reporters. He said, we will de-occupy Bakhmut. I think we will de-occupy two more cities. I will not tell you what cities, but we have a plan, a very comprehensive plan. Now, we've been speaking a bit about this the last week. Over the last week, Kiev has pushed into and announced the liberation of two towns, um, Klishikiva and Andrivka, both south of Bakhmut, both, well, five to eight kilometres away. Klishchivka, sorry, I should say. Keep getting bashed for that. Sorry about that. Now, this was only Mr. Zelensky's second wartime visit to Washington, but while he was there, he also announced Ukraine would start manufacturing weapons with the US. He said Ukraine will be able to produce, in particular, anti-aircraft defence We are preparing to create a new defence ecosystem together with the United States to produce weapons to further strengthen freedom and protection of life together. He then flew off to uh, Canada for his first visit during the full-scale invasion. We are expecting Canada to announce during this visit that they're going to be sending more weapons to Ukraine. That was following comments by to reporters by a government official. But speaking in New York, ahead of the visit, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, he spoke to reporters yesterday and said Canada will continue to support Ukraine as long as it takes and we will always stand firm to defend the rule of law and the international rules-based order. Now, Mr Zelensky is due to address Parliament in Ottawa and then hold a, a joint news conference with Mr Trudeau later today. And then Poland-Ukraine. We've been talking about this lately, the grain thing. Now, the Kremlin never misses an opportunity to try and stir things up. So they've said it expects escalating disputes between Ukraine and Europe over time. This is this is from Dmitry Peskov, the Kremlin spokesperson. He said, there are certain frictions between Warsaw and Kyiv. We predict that these frictions between Warsaw and Kyiv will increase. Friction between Kyiv and other European capitals will also grow over time. This is inevitable. Well, might be inevitable, or you might call it democracy and people having a sensible conversation amongst adults, Dimitri. But, you know, he said, I have no doubt that the dispute over the supply of grain from Ukraine to the Polish... Sorry, apologies, break. So Andrzej Duda said, who's the Prime Minister of Poland, said, I have no doubt that the dispute over the supply of grain from Ukraine to the Polish market is an absolute fragment of the entire Polish-Ukrainian relations. He was speaking earlier on today at a business conference. He said, I don't believe that, that it can have a significant impact on them, so we need to solve this matter between us. And yesterday, he said that Mr. Zelensky was a friend and they're going to resolve the difficult situation between their countries, which I think is what I think that's a fair assessment from what we can see. It is a real issue. I'm not trying to downplay the issue of grain. So the the issue is that because Ukraine can get a a smaller proportion of its grain out via the Black Sea to the rest of the world, it's being sold locally and it's flooding the market in Eastern Europe, which obviously upsets Polish farmers and others elsewhere, Slovenia included. So it is a real issue, but 
it's it's not going to derail the the support for um, for Ukraine in the war and linking it to Poland not sending any more weapons I think was just a bit of a reach by certain media outlets. Anyway, before we turn to our guests, I'd like to say hello to Colin Freeman, foreign correspondent par excellence. Colin, we'll talk later about your experience covering the fighting in Nagorno-Karabakh, but you've been investigating this story about the deaths of two British military volunteers in Ukraine, I understand. What can you tell us? Uh, yes, so these t- two two British military volunteers, one called Daniel Burke, um, a former parachute regiment member, from Manchester, um, a veteran of the war in Afghanistan. And the second one is Mr. Jordan Chaddick, who was a former Scots guard from Burnley in Lancashire. Both were uh, among the British volunteers who are currently fighting out in Ukraine. Daniel had been there right from the start and had spent time running his own unit, his own volunteer unit of foreign volunteers called the Dark Angels, although he had recently switched to doing primarily uh, frontline rescue work instead. And then uh, Jordan Chaddick, we understand, was with a, another volunteer unit, uh, a reconnaissance unit known, well, we think they were called the 50-50. But the, the, two, the two deaths, as we understand it, are, are not connected. But on, on August the 11th, Daniel was last seen in, he, he appears to have gone missing from a flat that he lived in, Zaporizhzhia, down in southeast Ukraine, near the main front line of the counteroffensive. I, I actually met Daniel a couple of times when I've been out in Ukraine. We interviewed him for the paper back in uh, July 2022. And so within a few days of him going missing, I had friends of his sort of mentioning in passing that he hadn't been seen at first, it was thought perhaps he had just taken himself off somewhere, or was you know was was just generally AWOL. But as time went on, people grew increasingly concerned for his safety, and very sad to say that last weekend his body was found. We understand outside of the city, and it, it's still not really clear what what happened. But there are all sorts of all, all manner of specul- speculative theories as to what happened, which we'll, we can perhaps touch on in a minute. Then coming to Jordan Chaddock, the former Scots guard, he was found in a stretch of water, we understand, near Bakhmut back in June of this year, late June, and he had his hands tied behind his back. So in that case, there very does very clearly a sense of sense of foul play from the outset. It's the, the I think the working assumption amongst many people with these cases is that there are perhaps victims of Russian undercover cells who might might have an interest in going around targeting foreign volunteers and killing them. But that we know of no such cells operating in Ukraine at the moment. It would be very dangerous for them to do so for a start. And that there would be no particular reason why either Daniel Burke or Jordan Shaddock would have been targeted. And what is perhaps noticeable in these cases is that um, while, while the police are investigating them both, um, that they're not saying an awful lot. But um, there is a wealth of chatter on different um uh, WhatsApp and signal groups used by the, the rest of the volunteer fraternity out here, who by and large generally know each other, even if they don't necessarily always fight together or alongside each other. And very quickly, in both cases, the speculation or, or, or turned to the, the the possibility that they might have been killed or, or had been in dispute with fellow volunteers. 
And there's been quite a lot of uh, discussion of this on various WhatsApp groups and so on. Um, I'm going to be careful about what I'm going to say about these cases because as a newspaper, we have to be responsible about not reprinting hearsay and and libel issues and so on. We we don't have quite the same latitude that people do in online WhatsApp groups or on YouTube channels, this sort of thing. But it, the current theory, or what one of the current theories with Daniel, is that he was shot by another volunteer while out at a firing range outside of Zaporizhia, and that, that that was then covered up. I won't say any more than that. As for the case with Jordan Chaddock, it's Again, the speculation that is is pretty pretty wide out there online on on Telegram groups, on YouTube and elsewhere, is that he was in some sort of unit that of volunteers that had a an initiation ceremony that went wrong, involving some form of waterboarding, and that was how he was killed. Having said that, I've also heard counter theories on that one to the effect that he there was, there was simply an argument one night, a petty argument, and it got out of hand. So, yeah, what these cases do is that they do shed a sort of perhaps a new light on the life of the volunteers who are serving out here. We don't really know how many of them are. Probably best guess is a few hundred Brits and perhaps a few thousand overall from around the world. And certainly when you speak to most volunteers, they do say that there are a few bad apples out here, not necessarily the majority, probably a minority, but there are people here with PTSD, with alcohol problems, with drug problems sometimes, uh, and, and also people who've just got got fairly vo- volatile personalities. And clearly in, in this combat zone with everybody carrying weapons and so on, that can be a fairly volatile mix. Yes, I'm sure. And it's worth saying, thank you for, for reiterating the point there, Colin, that we we are... Here at the Telegraph, we do. We're a member of the. We subscribe to the Independent Press Standards Organisation guidelines, which means we can't, as you say, we don't just go and. We're not a social media organisation. We don't have free range to just print and say any old tittle tattle. We do verify sources. We're very careful about saying, showing the limits of our knowledge and trying to say where we don't know and what is not verifiable. So if you want to go and have a look at the IPSO guidelines and see what we adhere to, then you'll find all that online. So thanks, Colin, for just reiterating and reminding us of that. But your experience of reporting many times from, well, all sorts of war zones, but in particular Ukraine, in particular since the start of the full-scale invasion, can you just give us a feel for what the general atmosphere is between the International Legion, those external supporters that are in and fighting for Ukraine, if there's any are they sort of welcomed with open arms having to join the fight? Or is there any, any kind of frisson, any kind of distance between the nationalities? Yeah, it varies. Most of the volunteers I've spoken to have said that at the beginning of the war, it was all a bit chaotic and there was no real proper vetting of people at all. Nobody was, people would be asked to show evidence of past military records. And of course, many of them do have past uh, records of past service in Iraq or Afghanistan, for example, with either the, the British or the US Army. But there are many who came out here who had no such qualifications. And there doesn't really seem to have been an organized vetting process. And practically every volunteer I've spoken to has complained to me that the, the worst thing about being out here actually sometimes is the other volunteers. They don't mean everybody. What they mean is there is a minority who, you know, who they don't think are responsible individuals and who shouldn't be here. And that then taints the rest of them in the eyes of the Ukrainian military. Now, there are certainly plenty of them still fighting out here. 
And I think amongst within the Ukrainian military, my sense is that there's a bit of a, a kind of mixed view of them. There are clearly some who are very good and who are very useful and who bring in new techniques, new perspectives on, on how to do the fighting and that they are very welcome. And then, of course, there are there there is a, a sort of a small number who are not like that and who can end up tiring the rest with with with, with their own reputation. So it, it is a mixed bag. But I mean, and also a, a lot of them, when they first came out here, they maybe did about two or three months at the front, or even that, and perhaps decided that it was too tough for them. Those that are out here now that they're here with their eyes open if they've stuck it out this long that they are definitely getting stuck into the fighting we've seen quite a number of them killed i, I say offhand i think there's a least uh, roughly a dozen of the brits um who are out here have died and that number is probably replicated elsewhere among the nationalities yeah, thanks, Colin. And I should just say that the only person who's ever tried to take an Ipso case out against me for uh, you take an Ipso case if you feel you've been wronged or if you've ever said anything that's untruthful. The only person who's ever tried to take an Ipso case against me was Yevgeny Prigozhin, and he lost. So there we go. Ipso does work. Anyway, thanks, Colin. We'll come back to you a little bit later. But now I'm delighted to welcome back to the pod Alice Edwards, UN Special Rapporteur on Torture and Other Cruel, Inhuman or Degrading Treatment or Punishment. Alice, welcome, welcome, welcome. You've written this week to the government of the United States saying it must reconsider its decision to transfer cluster munitions to Ukraine. This is after you sent an urgent communication to them in July 2023, urging Washington to provide its assessment of whether the decision to transfer um, cluster munitions was compatible with its obligations under international human rights law. Before I ask your reason behind the letter this week, can you just outline for us, please, your work in general and your experience of and ability to work in Ukraine? Thanks, Dom. It's good to be back on the podcast. Look, I'm the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture and Other Cruel, Inhuman or Degrading Treatment or Punishment. I've been appointed by the UN Human Rights Council as an independent expert to essentially advise the member states of the United Nations on global trends and developments and emerging issues that are going on around the world. In the context of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I've been working on this behind the scenes since the beginning of my mandate, which began in August last year. And just last week on Tuesday, I returned from a week in Ukraine. Now that as you've been discussing already, this is a very complex war and it takes on various different dimensions. So in July, I was alarmed to hear of the United States' decision to send cluster munitions to Ukraine, noting that there had been already uh, concern raised by many about both Ukraine and Russia's use of these weapons. They are, in my view, incompatible with obligations under the absolute prohibition on torture and other cruel, inhuman or degrading treatment or punishment. And this is because essentially they are indiscriminate weapons that don't have the capacity to properly target persons involved in fighting and therefore they have a heavy impact on civilians, both in the immediate and the longer term. So in July, I urged the US government to change course. They haven't so far 
done that last week, the letter that I wrote became public and I've yet to receive a a response from the United States, although they do inform me that they are still preparing one. And essentially I had asked the, the US government for their assessment of the human rights compatibility of these weapons, that it's up to them as a member state of the UN Convention Against Torture and other relevant treaties as well as under customary international law, to make those assessments prior to sending any forms of weapons that may have a disproportionate impact on civilians. Of course, no one, and myself certainly not, is is in any way saying that the government of Ukraine doesn't have the right to self-defence, to defend its territorial integrity. However, it needs to still comply with the broader principles of international law and the customs of war. Yeah, now I was going to ask you about the Ukraine's right to do what it likes on its territory in in legal means, within legal means. I mean, they're in an existential fight. If they give assurances to the United States that they are documenting where and when these things are being used, and for the record, I've heard anecdotally, so that doesn't mean it, it's, it, it's not data, anecdote is not data, but I've heard that, that they are perhaps the reports we hear that they are documenting exactly which grid squares they've covered and so on and so forth, might be a little bit woolly. But if they give assurances to the United States that they are cataloguing where and when these things are being used and that they will, once they've liberated the land, they will put in demining activity, is that the kind of assurances you're after or, or do you, would you not accept that? Look, I am informed that they have put in place a plan to minimise civilian harm by these weapons, both in the immediate and long term. I haven't yet been provided with a copy of that document. I mean, that is a, a good first step. The problem with these cluster munitions is that they... The accuracy is from all accounts, and of course the United States hasn't quite declared the exact accuracy that their particular form of these cluster munitions has. That is one of the problems. If you can't manage the impact of your weapons within a certain degree of legality, then the weapons themselves are problematic as a matter of international law. So I wait to see to have a, a see the full response from the United States government. The letter was also copied to both Ukraine and the Russian Federation because they were both obviously referenced in that document and they also both bear responsibilities in terms of deploying those weapons should they choose to do so. So that needs to be very carefully assessed. Yeah, and what action are you able to take? Do you have any powers of, of sanction at all if you are unsatisfied with the response you get? This is always the difficult question. Of course, my role is to raise these issues with governments. Quite a number of governments are responsive. They do consider that a letter from the special rapporteur system puts them on notice uh, that and that they are required to respond. All of this is then on the public record and it also forms part of an overall picture on an annual basis as to how many essentially complaints of human rights violations have been received and submitted and how many have been responded to. There are other mechanisms, of course, for holding states to account. But again, they're in the realm of, I'd say, 
you know, diplomatic persuasion or legal persuasion. So myself personally, my greatest asset in this role is my voice and to continue to dialogue with the countries themselves. Thanks. And where do you feel, how do you feel about this idea that it is, if Ukraine's in an existential fight, that they have the right to decide what they can and can't do on their territory? Look, I totally agree that this is an existential crisis for the Ukraine. It's also, frankly, an existential crisis for the United Nations and its ability to establish peace and stop wars, which is what the United Nations was set up for. And I think that's why there is such a focus on this conflict, even as there are many other very serious and other serious human rights violations going on around the world. There are limits. Ukraine itself, in all my discussions with Kiev last week, they are intent on following international law. Of course, they are frustrated that they are attempting to follow international law while their uh, view is that the Russian Federation is not doing the same. And certainly in the context of the torture allegations I received, it's quite clear to me that the Russian uh, Federation is perpetrating torture on a widespread scale that's part of state policy. But frustrations aside, the Ukrainian government is free to avail itself of methods of self-defense, but those methods of self-defense must conform with the international laws of war. They must conform with international humanitarian law and international human rights law. And these particular weapons, because of their impact on civilians, because of their indiscriminate and poor targeting problems, as well as the fact that they last a long time after the conflict, really puts them at a strain with these obligations under international law. Just finally on this point, when you say indiscriminate use, can you talk us through the the tech that you're referring to? Because like all munitions, like all tech, it gets improved over time, define improve in, in this area. But I mean, the suggestion that actually these are accurate enough to target individual trench lines, depending on the angle you're coming from, and therefore the impact is very, if it's not precise, it is as as much as accurate as could be hoped for in this day and age. Do you, do you accept that argument? And if you could give us some idea of what, what kind of baseline of technology you're working from? Look, I think I'd prefer to wait for the response from the US government. It's up for the US government and Ukraine to make out those arguments to me and I'll assess them overall in line with international standards. My focus is on the impact on civilians and making sure that these weapons don't give rise to essentially war crimes and other serious violations. Fair enough. Now, you mentioned just then, you say this is an existential crisis also for the UN. What are your thoughts on events this week in New York and the calls for UN, and in particular UN Security Council reform? Having worked with the UN for the last, uh, and been in and out of the United Nations for the last 25 plus years, I mean, it's not the first time, of course, that a UN Security Council veto permanent member has taken unilateral action against another a UN member state. Of course, we can think back to the US and Iraq. However, the and that's not to undermine that violation of international law. However, at this point in time, we're really at a point of multilateral divisions. I mean, getting resolutions passed, which paper tools to indicate agreement among states and the negotiation process of those resolutions 
lead states into dialogue with one another. So they have both a performative importance as well as finding out where the fault lines are between states and resolutions on many topics more and more difficult to obtain. The good thing is that they are still achieving agreement on a number of items. But of course, in the human rights sphere, one is able to opt out or vote no against a number of those resolutions. So I think the emphasis needs to be on peace and peace building. I think one of the real challenges with this conflict, of course, is that it's unclear to many states and individuals what the ultimate goal of the Russian Federation is in this regard. So I think stepped up convening power by the Secretary General being involved in all of the negotiations for peace and ultimately burden here is on the Russian Federation to withdraw. Yeah, and in terms of ultimate goals, I don't think Putin has rode back from his maximalist aims of trying to take the whole country. I don't think he's publicly said that. I mean, that's Evident, evidentially on the ground. He's not taking Kiev and what have you, but he's not said that he d- does not think that Ukraine is full of Nazis and drug dealers and all the rest of it. And I mean, the genocide word is a very powerful word, but I mean, if you look at what's happening to the country, to the attacks on civilians and the culture, do you think there's a Russia is waging a genocidal war? I hate not to be able to answer questions directly. I visited Kiev and Lviv last week. I I undertook an official country visit uh, for seven days. That at the time was the maximum UN security rules would allow myself to be in the territory. Uh, This visit was twice uh, postponed for security reasons. Uh, It is a very fraught environment. I don't think we should underestimate at all how serious this conflict is for Ukraine and also the ramifications of this conflict for countries very far away. That said, my focus is on torture. Of that visit was really on looking at allegations of torture as well as the investigation and prosecution practices that are in place and how the government is gearing up for the very large number of allegations. I'm still going through that material. I'll be presenting my fuller report to the Human Rights Council in March. I did publish a four-page summary of preliminary findings And of course, the genocide question is a live one. Torture is recognized under the Genocide Convention as a form of torture. That'll depend on the purpose for the torture having been undertaken. But what I can say about the allegations of torture is that it was my view that they were neither random nor incidental, that these are not the actions of a entirely undisciplined military force, but rather uh, purposeful violence perpetrated against both civilians and prisoners of war for a, a number of specific purposes. And some of those, in fact, all of them are related to Russia's war aims, essentially to instill fear in the population, to intimidate to punish those who are fighting on the other side and a lot of cases of extracting information and confessions, as well as what was new to when I last spoke to Dom, a number of alleged victims and survivors who I spoke to did recount how at gunpoint 
or after having been beaten or with the threat of videos of their beatings being released, that they were forced to participate in Putin referendum in the East and South. And, of course, some of them said they, they just thought this was another part of the humiliation and degradation, not realising that, in fact, those outside the detention facilities had also been, that there actually had been this so-called referendum. They just thought it was another part of the process of, of torture and humiliation. So there's a lot more to say on this, and yeah, my fuller report will go into much more detail. Thanks. Now, you rather grimly say that this is not random. I think you were specifically referring to Russia's actions there. You say it was purposeful against civilians and prisoners of of war. Have you any evidence of torture, uh, systemic torture against children? And you can include in your your answer, if you so wish, this idea of, well, the documented, the um, removal of children from Ukraine into Russia. And just for the, just so we are, we are straight down the, the line, what sort of scale do you have of any similar allegations against Ukrainian forces? Yeah, so regrettably on the children question, which is obviously an extremely important one, my visit didn't have the scope also to look into the abductions, which is obviously a terribly important issue, but also a very complex one. The scale of these allegations against the Russian uh, Russian forces is extensive. The Office of the Prosecutor General, in their statistics of persons who've been liberated out of occupied areas and who'd been detained and or through prisoner exchanges, 90% of those individuals are indicating that they've been subjected to torture or other inhuman or degrading treatment, including rape and sexual violence. I also met an NGO that is carrying out extensive investigations in a very detailed fashion where of 300 interviews they've compiled from one region of Kherson, 107 of those cases involve sexual forms of torture. So although... Yeah, there are just so many elements to this and certainly, you know, my assessment of the scale, the purpose of why it's being perpetrated, the methods that are being used and also the targets really exhibit for me an orchestrated campaign. I mean, I returned from Ukraine with this real sense that Russia's war is being perpetrated on the one hand by modern technology, high-tech weapons, as well as conventional weapons. There's this 21st century war going on that we haven't seen the likes of for many decades. And at the same time, this war is being perpetrated on the bodies and minds of Ukrainian civilians and prisoners of war. There really is this kind of, seems to me, this two fronts. There's the kind of war front and then there's the attacking individuals. I think that's the scale of it. It's, I mean, I, it's really horrifying. The whole thing is horrifying that this is going on. When, when, I, when it's hard, I'm not at all a believer that people aren't trained, they don't know better. Everybody in this day and age knows that torture is prohibited. Every soldier knows that there are laws of war, a disciplined military force that can carry out orchestrated 
tactics on the battlefield can also do the same when they're looking after prisoners and behave in an appropriate way, unless they're given carte blanche and or directions to do whatever they like. It is horrifying. It's horrifying listening to it. So we can only imagine what it's like for it to be your daily work. So we thank you for your for your work. You've got a friend in the pod here. We like talking to you. We like uh, asking you the difficult questions, but you'll always have a have an area here to to explore and explain what you're up to. I mean, Alice, you've described their systemic, but I mean, is this on the sort of scale from brutal people, a system that allows that brutality to be expressed or a system that actively supports that brutality? Where are we? Where's the swingometer? My view is that this state policy, this is, I heard also of a system of trying to convince captured Ukrainians, whether civilians or prisoners of war, to become essentially spies for the Russian Federation. Now, this information at this stage is unverified, but I was even given information as to that Russian people who have Russian military will get a top up in their salaries of 10% if they capture a Ukrainian. They will it will go to 25% higher if they are able to if yeah if they're able to extract information or a confession of some sort and then it goes to 50% additional payment if they can turn someone so and their method of doing this is through torture it is through brutalizing people it is through humiliating and ridiculing people the stories that i've heard the people that I've met, grown men brought to tears, grown men being un- unable to recount their experiences, stopping and stressing that they that they couldn't remember that part of what happened. And we do know from research by neuroscientists and others that stresses on the brain cause memory loss and difficulty of memory recall, let alone post-traumatic stress disorder. So it's really heart-wrenching to hear these stories and there's I think there's still a lot more to unpack as I said that information about kind of attempts to change the allegiance of individuals was new information to me I hadn't heard that said elsewhere I'm now looking into verifying that information in terms of your question about brutality I also visited one of the prisoner of war camps of the Ukrainians holding Russian prisoners of war Part of my visit to Ukraine was to also check up on the status and care of Russian prisoners of war. My mandate is global and neutral and I remain impartial. And talking to some of the Russian prisoners of war, it was quite clear to me that the recruitment process had changed and shifted slightly So along with other special rapporteurs, we'd written to the Russian Federation about, with concerns about the recruitment by the Wagner Group of prisoners direct from prison. So convicted individuals being released from Russian prisoners, prison, sorry, and being sent to fight. Well, of those that had recently arrived into this prisoner of war camp and of those that had been in the battlefield essentially for anywhere between one and three months, they had been recruited by the Ministry of Defence out of prison 
Now, I don't have any statistics to say that this cohort of individuals are more violent than the other military fighters. And what undermines that, of course, is the fact that the evidence that I do have from quite a sizable number of testimonies as well as written documents is that, in fact, it's so systematic that different parts, different individuals are playing different roles. Nonetheless, sitting across from an individual who explains quite calmly that they had signed a contract to go to fight for the Russian Federation for six months with the promise that their criminal record would be quashed, and then they inform you that they'd spent one year in prison of a 20-plus year prison sentence for murder. This is a dark period that individuals are being recruited direct from prison, released from their criminal convictions and some very serious criminal convictions, getting minimal training, Two weeks to one month was the maximum. Of course, Russian men have also undertaken military service in their in the early days, so most of them are also trained in that regard. But just a very unsettling set of circumstances. Yeah, releasing no matter the crime, so there's no limit on kind of what crime you might have been committed. Everybody seems to be able to sign up. And then there were also information I received about uh, promises of not being on the front line, having been abandoned by their soldiers, having their fellow soldiers having felt deceived by the Russian Federation because, in fact, they were put on the front line. It's a pretty wicked, well, it's a wicked set of circumstances, as I said, the likes of which it's, I can't think of another context where there's this level of these many dimensions to this type of conflict. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. So if we're able to put the scale to one side just for a moment, the systemic nature of this abuse and this torture, have you seen that anywhere else in, in other conflicts, any other conflicts in recent years that, that you've looked at to see that, the occurrence, the just the systemic nature of it? Look, it's really important not to compare situations and although I, I was the one that started down that track and I think this is also important for victims and survivors I quite often get asked that question no matter what the issue is around well how does this government policy compare with that one or how does this country's practice in this compare with another and I think for if you've been a victim of some of this abuse of course it doesn't matter what's happening elsewhere that said, the systemic nature is different to – we're talking about a well-organised state that has an extremely heavy hierarchical arrangement. I think that is potentially what makes this this context stand out for me from, say, other – countries where terrible things are going on, but it's less clear who's giving the orders and whether orders are being given. So I think that's I think that's probably the most I can say on that at this stage. Fair enough. I'm just coming towards the end now, but in your work from the United Nations, do you have you ever been under any pressure from a UN member state to curtail your work? Or have you found some states to be less forward-leaning in 
what's surely an unequivocal area of human progression. Have you ever found anyone standing in your way or doors closing when you sought help? Look, <laughs> I'm actually reading the biography of Antonio Guterres, who was High Commissioner for Refugees, obviously, while I was Chief Legal Advisor at the UNHCR. And I just came across a very interesting line where he was asked this question, a similar question in his campaign to be Secretary General. And he said, of course, I've come, come under pressure from governments, but I've not been influenced by it. So there are countries that are more and others that are less engaging uh, with the human rights system. Every year I report to the March Human Rights Council about the number of that I've been engaged in, how many individuals that those allegations affected, and whether or not governments have responded. It's uh, And there are various reasons why governments do and do not respond. In this circumstance, the fact that this is this is number one priority for the Russian Federation and the fact that they've so far not engaged with my letters is disappointing. But again, the United States also hasn't yet responded, although they have communicated to me that a response is forthcoming. Uh, I think the tactics that certain governments use, this week we in the Human Rights Council from the special rapporteur on the Russian Federation, and she documented how her mandate, the Russian Federation, have blankly refused to engage and to acknowledge that she has a role to play. I likewise received the same letter from the Russian Federation, which essentially informed me that if I invite the special rapporteur on the Russian Federation to join my communications with the Russian Federation, they will not respond. But of course, they were not responding before the appointment of special rapporteur on the Russian Federation. I think these days, there's a lot of picking and choosing. I had excellent cooperation from the Ukrainian authorities on the ground. Of course, there were different levels of nervousness around my visit, because of course, they understood that I would be an honest broker and that I would be documenting and sharing my findings with the whole world. And at the same time, there were elements of the Ukrainian system they thought might be more nervous and, in fact, were more open even about their own shortcomings and their own challenges. And I think that's the model. There is no perfect country that if one is committed to human rights, then one has to acknowledge these shortcomings. But, of course, there's also in this conflict propaganda war ongoing. And I think that's something that we all have to navigate and dig down to find the truth, triangulate information, get as much information from different varied sources as possible, and to do proper due diligence before speaking up. Do you feel your work has the full support and the maximum diplomatic heft from the Secretary General? That I don't really have a response to. Two, I mean, a number of other media outlets have communicated that my statement at the end of my visit on Ukraine as to the volume of allegations, the volume of credible allegations was one of the strongest given by a UN, someone affiliated with the United Nations. Look, I think the Secretary General is doing the, the best that he can in this 
terribly fraught context. I'm not involved in any behind-the-scenes engagement, and I hope there's a lot going on, and I hope that this terrible conflict, terrible war can be resolved in the near term. I'm not optimistic about that. At the very start of this conflict, I was predicting this is a long, this will be a long-term war, and regrettably, and what I've also been reminding the states is the longer this goes on and the more terrible the crimes, the it becomes more and more difficult for communities to reconcile and to build trust. The effect of torture, and as I said, I think it's widespread and systematic, is such that it breaks those ability to trust the other side. It entrenches views perhaps previously held about not trusting the other side. It really cements divisions in society. And that's part of the reason why we absolutely prohibit torture under international law. There is nothing good that comes of torture in the short or the long term. Well, Alice, we're going to call it a day there. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Really appreciate the candor. You've answered the questions where you've been able to. And when you've said you failed, you've, you've not been able to. We hope to stay in touch. I'd very much like to continue reading your work when you put out your report. When are we expecting that? Is that going to, as in the public, when do we get a view? Yeah, so a preliminary report is already out and the fuller version will be in the March Human Rights Council, early March. Thank you to Colin Freeman and Dr. Alice Edwards. You can listen back to the pre-recorded interviews we conducted on our US trip and find additional material on YouTube. Just search for The Telegraph. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it's released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk we do read every message. You can also contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest was today produced by Giles Gear and Elliot Lampitt. Executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 